God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, verse A. God's first commandment unto his created beings, and the first words spoken to Adam and Eve. Having children is the fulfillment of the law, and at the same time it is a result of the blessings of God upon a couple. Our topic this morning is procreation versus reproduction. Simply said, the having of children. And I want to be careful now, because it's not my intention to, soar, to, sow, to, to pour salt in anybody's wounds. And I don't know everybody's recreative or procreative story. And, but at the same time, I, in my ignorance as a young pastor, has given poor advice to people about their reproductive care. For most people, having children is the most significant undertaking of their lives. And so we don't want to underestimate the enormous significance of this. But we also need to bear in mind that Christ has now come, that Christ has lived among us, and that we who follow him have been joined into one family as brothers and sisters in Christ, not as parents or children. If I noted a number of times before, my children are not my children. They are not my possessions. God has loaned me unto them to bring them up in the Christian faith and then turn them onto the world. And in the new heaven and a new earth, they will not be my children. They will be my siblings. It's important theological distinction. God does not have grandchildren. We are adopted in the family of God and stand there as co-equals. So without undervaluing the presence of children in our lives, we should also be free of the idolatrous desire to have them at any cost. Our children are not our projects. They're gifts from God. There's a minor point that I want to make sure that you understand here, that we need to be wary of the language of the world. You see, the right to reproduce is lurking at our door and in many ways has already come. And the producing of children for somebody else's use seems dangerous, if not immoral, even if they do not seem in the ordinary sense to harm anybody. It's a darkened road we continue to tread because science has a way of progressing all of its own without very much deep thought on our part. The first beginnings of this you could call artificial insemination. Artificial insemination has been around for a long time. It's not new at all. It's when you use donor sperm, usually anonymous, or sperm from the husband of the woman to be inseminated. It's a pretty simple procedure. More complex is in vitro fertilization, where both the sperm and the egg are externalized from the humans. They're fertilized in a laboratory, and then the fertilized embryos are then implanted into the woman's uterus, usually the woman who donated the egg, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can also have donated womb. The, the sperm and the ovum usually come from the husband and the wife, but they don't have to. IVS is increasingly being combined with 
pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Here, the newly fertilized embryos are tested for genetic and chromosomal defects before being implanted. More recently, a new technique has, has come into to process, intracyplastic sperm injection. A single sperm is selected and injected physically into the egg cytoplasm, the procedure which seems to succeed more often than just normal in vitro fertilization, right? Like I said, technology has a way of just moving on with or without us. Achieving fertilization is not, of course, the same as achieving pregnancy, which is not the same as a successful pregnancy. Success rates decline as we move from fertilization to pregnancy to birth. Lewis Brown was the first baby produced by, Vern, by means of IVF. She was born in 1978. Now 4 million children worldwide have been born by IVF, but... It's only 20 to 30% of fertilized eggs eventually result in the birth of a child. Only 20 to 30%, which means that you're, you're at a 70 to an 80% loss of fertilized eggs. And for those of us that believe that life begins at fertilization, that's a colossal loss. That doesn't seem very successful at all. That's like losing two, or that's like losing seven to eight humans in order to manufacture two, or three. I don't know any human endeavor that has that kind of losses and everybody just goes, eh. Because it's common to implant multiple embryos in order to secure success. Later, some of those embryos may be cold. They call it cold. It's actually aborted. You'll put in eight, nine, ten, and after you see which ones take, it might be five. Out of the five, you take four or three away. The best-known IVF patient, you might remember her, Nadia Suleiman. We called her Octomom. <laughs> in fact, in preparing the sermon, I didn't know her name. I went, Octomom. And went, oh, there she is. She had octuplets in January 2009. While all eight of her children have survived and multiple births carry an increased amount of health factors. I personally, at the time, in 2009, found her choice to be absolutely abhorrent. I thought, who in the world would want eight children all at the same time? Are you kidding me? Until I was later confronted with the reality that a normal IVF uh, production would have normally called for the abortion of five to six to maybe even seven of those babies, and she fought for the right to keep all eight that had been implanted. Now her choice to me seems to be beyond heroic. I think about myself with, with an extra seven Nicole Wilsey's running around. I'm like, oh. Beyond heroic she is, I think. Now, surrogacy has been around for quite some time, but again, the ethical, the, the ethical problem that we have here is, is not the surrogacy itself, but it's the business side. There was a writer of an Atlantic article who noted that I recently met a married woman who looked femme and trim, and I, she mentioned that she was on her way to go have a baby. Huh? She explained that she was flying to the planned cesarean birth of her third child. 
a product of in vitro fertilization with her egg, her husband's sperm, who is carried by an unrelated surrogate mother. The casualness of this does not do justice to the moral issue of looking at and seeing children as a production, as something that we have made. Was this child begotten or was this child made? You might remember the kerfluffle back in 1986. Any of you remember Baby M? Baby M was born to Mary Beth Whitehead. Miss Whitehead had contracted with William and Elizabeth Stern, who intended to raise this child as their own. Miss Whitehead was artificially inseminated with Mr. Sperm, Mr. Stern's sperm. And in return, the Stearns paid her a fee of $20,000, which calculated for inflation now is $55,000. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a, that's a heck of a part-time job there. Fifty-five grand, and I know I'm going to get a little women hate because being pregnant is not a part-time thing. But to a certain extent, it also is. When my wife was pregnant, she did all of the things she did before she was pregnant all while doing the same thing she did while she was currently pregnant. I like to think that I picked it up there in the third quarter and helped out with a few more dishes and that sort of thing. You can ask her to see if that actually happened. But 50 grand? To be paid 50 grand? The Stearns also covered her medical expenses. The case made news when Miss Whitehead changed her mind and the courts had to decide whose baby it was. It was her egg that she carried to term. She did end up with visitation rights. The case demonstrates how muddled the parent-child relationship can become when choice becomes our main factor. Miss Stern, who proposed to rear the child while Miss Whitehead was the genetic gestational mother, supposed, which could be possible now, that Miss Stern had donated an egg to be fertilized and instead of Mrs. Whitehead's egg. Or suppose the egg had been donated by a third party. Who then is the baby's mother? We find ourselves trying to decide which of these functions give which mother the greatest claim to this human being. Technology makes it possible to put choice at the center of the reproductive project and to distinguish between the commissioners of that project and collaborators in that project. Is the new definition of a parent one who is the planning, managing, reproductive project from conception unto completion? There are several aspects in this project. Conception, gestation, child rearing, all of these have been separated, each one becoming an occasion for choice and payment, by the way. Is this child begotten or is it made? And does it make any difference to anybody in the world? Should it make a difference to us? It's essential to note that it's possible for a child now to have up to five parents. Two genetic parents from whom sperm and egg come, a surrogate gestational mother, and then the two rearing parents who do not need to be the same as the genetic parents. You have five people involved in this process. And as our society gets more convoluted as to what, can, what, what actually, I mean, we can't even decide what a woman and a man is anymore. You can imagine how some of these people are thinking, we can have five people into this group. 
It's going to become a wild-eyed mess. And courts are going to have to figure these things out because there is no appetite with our political class to do it themselves. Because all of these are hot topic items and the only thing you're going to do is lose. You're going to make somebody mad. Such possibilities in which human freedom intervenes to make choices possible forces us to reflect upon the meaning of the bond between parent and children. How important is biological ties and generations? How important is the child to be begotten and not made? In our world, there are now so many ways to have children. Is the fact that the end product the same does not mean that we have done the same thing? Artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization, its surrogacy, many involve parties other than the husband and the wife. The sperm and the ovum may be donated, and donated does not mean given freely. It often means that money has been changed hands. And as money changes hands, now the stakes go up. Moreover, we may suspect that once having come down this path, we will find other temptations to come. After all, when the gamete of the third-party donor is used, medicine is no longer treating the disease of either the husband or the wife. Instead, what is being treated is the couple's desire to have a child. And while the paying of good money for that child. So why stop at providing just any old child? Why not make sure that they receive a child that meets certain specific specifications? We'll consider genetic screening more detail later on, but this is far from an idle speculation. Couples who seek donated gametes to have children will generally have invested a great deal of money and a great deal of time in the attempt. It should not surprise us if they want the best possible results and put more matter-of-factly to what degree has this child become a product and what kind of quality control seems appropriate, even inevitable. At what point do we seek damages because the child promised to us is not the child that we got? These are all important concerns. More fundamental, though, is the fact that the use of these donated gametes, whether in artificial insemination by a donor or in a laboratory fertilization, the lines of kinship are blurred and confused. The child begins to resemble a product of our wills rather than a product of our passions, and the presence of the child no longer signifies God's goodness, nor does it embody the union of its parents. Does this all matter at all? Does anyone care? I suspect the world does not care at all. They want outcomes, and that's all they care about. After all, one might respond to noting that even contraception brings a, an element of reason. It brings an element of choice unto our sexual acts. Adoption, too, may be said to blur the lines of kinship as well. My wife Stephanie and her brother are both ad- adopted. And yet her brother and she have completely different relationships with their parents. My brother dated a woman in Michigan several years ago. It was a, a, a woman that we actually really liked. The fam- we used to joke that we liked Sandy more than we liked Tony. That we would trade them if it were possible. But she was the, the child of a very successful and beloved county judge in Kalamazoo, Arkansas. She noted that she had 17 brothers and sisters. I was like, 17? How in the world do you do that? And she's like, well, five of them are real. What she meant by real is five of them were biological children from the union of her mother and her father. The the rest of the group was a combination of foster kids and partial adoptions. 
What a weird world do we live in. We should not forget that, that people most likely do have, have due recourse to donor insemination, IVF, and surrogacy when they desperately, desperately desire a child. And we need to understand that and sympathize with that desire. Those who desire children but cannot have them are understandably saddened. Nevertheless, we must learn to pursue the projects in the fullness of God's creative will, not necessarily ours. A couple unable to have children can and should find other ways in which their union may be fruitful. God blesses us in many and various ways. And the one task that he does not lay upon us may be replaced by other tasks, other tasks that are less open to those who do have children. An equally significant care and preservation of life. I want to close by reading to you what Paul says to us from Galatians. Now therefore faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the the coming faith, so to be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, there is nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings and heirs according to the promise. We submit ourselves unto the will of God, who has freed us from the law, who has made us to be heirs to the promise of eternal life and heirs to Abraham who, by the the way, had nowhere near the amount of technology we had, but he too still had to wrestle with the issue of reproduction and who would inherit his house. In the meantime, we trust the Lord. Amen.